This is Cinema Activist, the official podcast of Lion's Den Productions, for filmmakers and cinephiles who crave context. So you finished Triple Divide. This is your first feature film. You want people to see it. What's what's the plan? When what year did you did you guys finish Triple Divide? Like the first version. 2013. 2013. Yeah. 2013. So 2013, um, you decided to self-distribute, or did you go the traditional, you know, um, Hollywood fantasy route of paying to submit it to a bunch of film festivals because, you know, <laughs> you were going to get in Sundance and then sure. there was going to be a bidding war and you were going to become rich and, and make as many documentaries for millions of dollars as you want. And I mean, like we were, we were on that route. Yeah. <laughs> we sent the film to Sundance, you know, it was an early cut. It wasn't a finished cut, but it was early. It was a, it was enough of a cut to, for the Sundance to say, wow, this is like, a never before told story, you know, that could change the, the world when it comes to people on this issue. This would be right up Sundance's alley. I mean, yeah, and I was like, how could, how could this not work for them? Or, you know, plus, so <laughs> it, I was naive. And of course it doesn't because we're not really in that genre. Like we're not cutting and making films for somebody like Sundance, you know, we're making films on a, in a different realm. Um, so that got rejected and i was like that's fucking weird and then we ended up um did you get the form rejection or uh it was just the typical template you know rejection yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. we had so many submissions uh, this year we just couldn't yeah. take everything that's <laughs> <laughs> such a crap like let's come up with something better man how can everybody say the same damn thing so we then submitted to like two or three other festivals and got in great the first two right away and i was like oh yeah that makes sense so sweet we'll stay on this track and then the second one was a local one in pennsylvania um melissa what was the name of that, that festival you remember the one where we got censored out the boonies the boonies yeah so the boonies international film festival in warren short-lived um, short-lived festival yeah was- it had a lot of good energy and a lot of good um yeah. opportunity there i love disclosure it. i was uh for about a period of maybe six months and i don't know if it was your year or not i think they did two years of the festival i was the vice president of the festival i had no decision in uh, or i had no voice in making decisions or whatever um but anyway well, when they censored the film and when they basically accepted it and then said we can't show this because it's going to impact our relationship with business sponsors right because they have the big okay so this is in warren pennsylvania and they have a huge refinery yeah uh, right on the water there um, yeah big which, oil refinery takes tar sand oil which is probably their sp- sponsor i would imagine yeah. one of their sponsors so they say we like your film but we can't show your film we or- selected your film we've deselected your film like a couple days before hand before the festival starts and we're letting you know now wow i thought oh shit this is 
we can't keep doing this. We can't be in a position where we're putting our time and investments into festivals and they have the opportunity to reject it because of business sponsors, because business sponsors all over this country are in conflict of interest for triple divide. Yeah. That's what art is for, right? <laughs> like it's, we won't get in anywhere. Um, so, okay, I, hold on. I'm just remembering right now. Yeah. I think that may have been the festival maybe where I met you guys originally. Cause Josh Fox was there. Yeah. Cause he was on their yeah. advisory board and weren't you guys there with cameras, like filming him speaking or something like that. I'm trying to remember yeah. like all, I think this is where we maybe met. I could be wrong. I, don't remember. I, I might have just gotten a business card from one of you or something and then followed up from there. But that's okay. Anyways, that's the boonies, Warren, Pennsylvania. You so did you all withdraw the film? Did no, you edit did. the film? What did you do? No, they wouldn't show it. And okay. We published an article and we said, you know, the boonies, you know, censored the film and uh this is bullshit. And we're just letting the public know. Uh, and then Melissa and I, you know, we talked about it and we were like, we don't, we don't have enough money to spend a thousand dollars on festival circuits. Mm -hmm. So we can, we can then switch courses and try and do this community kind of education, screening, fundraising route and see how that goes. So what happened was we premiered the film in March 9th, 2013, Mark Ruffalo had signed on as a narrator a month before that it gave it an extra bit of hype how did okay hold on okay <laughs> but how did mark ruffalo did, were you sending it to people that you were hoping would no 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 we we how did it come across mark ruffalo i'll let melissa tell um the story about who hooked us up on that but okay. basically i got a phone call uh and a voicemail because i didn't know who it was and it says, hi, this is Mark Ruffalo. I just watched Triple Divide. It's an awesome film. Uh, I want to help and contribute anywhere I can. Let me know. And I'm like, hey, Melissa, Mark Ruffalo just called us. And uh, that was a really you know, awesome moment. And That's then huge. That, we found out how it happened. And she can tell you how that happened. How did it happen, Melissa? Um, well, one of our early supporters, John Trallo, who um, was a community rights and rights of nature activist in Pennsylvania, um, was writing a blog back then about what was happening with the fracking development coming into his region of the state. And um, Mark happened to read it and reached out to him and said, if you ever need anything, let me know. Keep it up. You're doing good work. Wow. And John later cashed that favor in by sending Mark the early cut of Triple Divide because John was one of our initial backers of the film. Wow. And um, yeah, asking Mark if he wanted to get involved. That's uh, that's awesome. Yeah. Big shout out to, to John. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, so Mark, then Mark is involved. You ask him to record some narration and he accepts. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. Which yeah, which I assume it. helps with the self-distribution at that point. That gives you like some more fuel, right? Like some, some PR fuel. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, it definitely helped. I mean, Mark is the reason. Bruno? 
I'm sorry. It's thundering, and Runo is terrified of thunder, so he's oh, like, no, Runo. Um, <laughs> hey, Runo, why don't you just go in the closet? Anyway. <laughs> well, the, it became clear, like, what the opportunities were with self-distributing when we premiered the film in one of the lowest populated counties in the state, which is Potter County at the theater downtown in Cottersport, um, which happens to be owned by the former owner of Adelphia who was imprisoned. Uh, And the manager of the theater had to call him in prison and say, can these two people premiere the film? And he was like, you tell um, so-and-so, you know, Melissa can have whatever she wants and basically let's, let's the film be shown in theater. And we get there on the day of, and it's standing room only in the middle of nowhere. So we've got, you know, a 300 seat theater packed out with people in the back standing. That's thrilling. Uh, Yeah, it was amazing. Uh, And we're, it literally doesn't have a digital projector. So we have a $600 projector on a ladder in the middle of the room. Wow. With a black cloth over it, running to speakers that we hooked up at the front. And that's how the film's being shown. This is DIY, man. Oh, you man have 300. Like These are the even... people you want to see the, the film, though. This is, right? Yeah. Like, any means necessary. Yeah, yeah. So that, that kind of set up us carrying a projector around with speakers mm-hmm. became the standard for, like, the next three, four years. Wow. Of self-destruction. Your, actually, your festival, or not your festival, but your screening at the Erie Art Museum. In July of 2013. Yeah, like that was such a successful show with people really supporting us and buying DVDs and, you know, showing up and having like, again, like a sold out um, uh, setting Mm -hmm. that showed us what the potential was for self-distribution. And that was actually how I convinced Melissa that, you know, we can just do this full time Mm -hmm. with respect to distributing the film because, people want to see it and they want to see it this way and it's going to require us you know going out there and doing that you were seeing like this grassroots um energy like in real time because we so through the film society of northwestern pennsylvania where i program uh yeah we did a screening at our program called film at the erie art museum which was great and then we also had you back to another series I did at the time called Edinburgh Film Series at Edinburgh University in November of 2013. And we had a, like hundreds of, of people at that one, like 500 people or something. Yeah, you had a huge crowd. Yeah. For a university, it's the biggest show we've ever done. Um, yeah. awesome. It was amazing. I mean, the film, you know, so which, which came first, Gasland or Triple Divide? Help me. Um, Gasland came first. Okay. And then we ours released uh, about two years later, I think. Okay. Gasland was kind of like your everyone's like, and probably you all as well, I would imagine. But you guys were already in it, so maybe um, you knew you knew about everything in Gasland probably. But Gasland for people like me was kind of like the introduction, and then for me, Triple Divide was like the deeper. I mean, nothing, nothing against Josh Fox because Gasland is how the world knew about fracking. But um, Triple Divide for me was like uh, 
like the real um, raw information, like no bullshit. Um, this is what's going on and you need to pay attention to this. This was like the urge, like the real urgency for me came through triple divide. And I would imagine that's what you were seeing in these early screenings that were kind of telling you all like, okay, we could, we could do this ourselves because people, people want to know this information. This is important. What were some like successes success stories, failures, challenges of doing self-distribution back then and how long did you do this tour for? And wasn't Tesla or something involved at some point, like, <laughs> or a Tesla? Yes. Yeah, I wrote, um, so, I mean, anything that you is DIY is inherently pretty challenging sometimes. Um, you don't have other people to go to, to help you when shit fails. Um, what can fail? Like just technology, you know, just the sound, the audio isn't working. Mm. We like, we have picture, but no sound, you know, stuff like that. Um, mm. That's like, you already have a hundred people in the room and you should ain't working. Um, so, and then you just have to figure it out. You have to figure it out on the fly. And, um, and it was just Joshua and I back then. So there was times, I mean, to be perfectly honest, it was really stressful and we were both doing it full time. Um, cause like Josh said, he convinced me like, you know, we really need to put everything we have into this. And I was, I agreed. And so I quit my job and then I was like, yeah, this really needs to work. So I don't starve. Um, anyway, um, but it's also really beneficial because you have control of everything. And when things go well, that's the way, you know, that's the way you want it to be. We decided, so we did some, you know, we did some state-based tours in Appalachia where the film happened. And from there, um, I wrote a grant proposal to the Knight Foundation to do a national tour to take it to places where fracking hadn't really gotten a hold yet, but was being proposed to be, you know, a harbinger that's letting people know, like, this is the, this is the horror show that's about to hit you. So you need to shut it down before it gets out of control. Um, we won that grant. So we won, how much was it? Like $35,000 or something, Josh? Awesome. 35 from the so Knight that, Foundation. Awesome. Yeah, $35,000 for the two of us to travel across the country and tour the film for five months. Which, when you think about it, is like really not that much money. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know? for two people, yeah. Yeah, for two people who also have like you know bills to pay and all this stuff. So, um, so it's you know we're both really resourceful and scrappy. Like, um, oh, the Tesla. So I was like, so we're gonna tour a film about fracking around the country in. Uh, a vehicle that the industry people are going to come to the screening and say, but you're driving around on fossil fuels, but you're saying fossil fuels harm people. That's you're the first thing, right? Right. <laughs> like one first of the first things they'll say. I'm a hypocrite. Okay, sure. Um, but I just didn't, I wanted to initially, I just wanted to get around that a little bit somehow. Mm -hmm. And so I started looking into electric cars and back then 
the range of your typical electric car was like 50 miles. Like that's not going to work for a cross country trip. And then I looked at Tesla and Tesla's cars are getting 300 miles per charge. And I was like, okay, that's more manageable. So I just wrote a letter to Tesla and I told him about the project and I said, you should give us a car to drive. Yeah. Why the hell not? Right. And um, that's where Mark really came in, uh, came in strong. Okay. As it turns out, Elon is a little bit of a fanboy of Mark Ruffalo. (laughs) And so they let us have a car. And so Josh and I got to drive a Tesla Model S, like stacked to the brim with all the, the bells and whistles wow. across the United States. We drove, what, 17,000 miles, um, which was really cool. Amazing experience. It was also incredibly stressful <laughs> because the car only goes 300 miles a charge and Tesla's charging stations aren't in North Texas, and they ain't in Oklahoma, they're on Nebraska. They're like 700 miles apart sometimes. So like, oh, how are you going to get from point A to B when it's 700 miles if the car only goes 300? Um, and so we, they gave us adapters for um, 50 amp and 30 amp plugs. So we ended up staying at a lot of RV campgrounds. We like pull up in, a, in the Tesla, like the low rider, you know, Tesla. Yeah. And then we like, plug into the RV site in between, like surrounded by RVs and all these like retired people are like looking out their windows, like what's going on over there. Astronauts. <laughs> and then we pull our tent out and we pitch a tent behind the car and we sleep in a tent while our car is plugged in. And people are just like, what is Yeah. This? Like you were aliens. <laughs> I had not seen Tesla. Tesla was like, you know, just like, what is going on here? <laughs> But the stressful part, so the stressful part was like, how do we actually get across the country? Yeah. And and get to where we need to go, which might be over here, but we have to go like over here to charge the car and then back down around to go there. And so, so it was cool and amazing that you got this early model S, but it did add more logistical <laughs> issues. Oh, it was a logistical nightmare. Yeah. How do you, um, so were you, while you all were on the road, were you also booking like more places or did you have everything booked so far out? Like how did, how did that go? Was it something you had to improvise on too, as you went? Yeah. Yeah. We were creating promotional materials for shows that we had booked while we were on the road. I mean, it was when I think of, I mean, it was no wonder like, and I had, um, I ended up having incredible uh, physical pain. I had lower back and hip pain. I had nerve pain problems. And it's really no wonder because it was incredibly hard. It was really stressful. Um, my body was constantly flooded with adrenaline and cortisol and all of those fight or flight hormones. Hey, Runo, can we not? Come on. That's not going to get you away from the thunder. Um trying to dig through the wall again. Um, So it was, yeah, it was, it was really stressful. Stressful. How, how long was this tour? Um, Seven months. Seven months. 
June to November or December. Do you have a no. do you know how many screenings there were? Uh, I, I, there was probably over 30. Okay. Oh, definitely over 30. I mean, we had, we had like four in West Virginia. We had some in, we had a couple, we have one in Texas. And then we had like a string of them in California, a string in Oregon. We had screenings in Montana. Um, yeah. Would you say, um, okay. So the film obviously has lived on since then so i would say it's definitely was a successful effort where did you where did you guys decide to go from from there how did invisible hand come into play and when did you know that was going to be the next subject the rights of nature well the at the end of the triple divide the the person who makes the final statement has enacted um, a rights of nature clause on his farm um, as part of a way to protect it. And, you know, that was a, that was an ideal that we knew about. And I had been following that movement ever since we started the work in Ohio. It was part of the underlying structure of what created everything we did. Um, but I didn't, I never thought it was going to be a reality, uh, so quickly. Cause when you tried to speak about it in Ohio, you know, it was like talking about aliens or something. So you put that at the end of the film, like as a hopeful note for the future, or were you kind of like ingeniously planning out, like this is going to be our next subject we're going to tackle? <laughs> uh, that, well, I think we were, you know, we were both hoping that 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 could happen, but we didn't have a, a way to do that. Um, so, rights of nature, there was no avenue to tell that story in a way that was powerful enough. To capture people's attention, you, know, you can't just make a rights of nature film um, in our style, where you just interview talking heads and that's your film. Um, you know, like you said, like we're we're, we're a lot more raw and in depth. So we want to know the process of a community going from not knowing about rights of nature to knowing about it to drafting a bill. Um, and that's a completely different type of film. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the, uh, Melissa got wind of the story in Grant Township, and that's what kicked off the possibility of, of making the film Invisible Hand, which I had wanted to make a film about, you know, the capitalism period. Um, so the fact that the two merged in this way, that's kind of how it happened. Mm-hmm. So but how, she can tell you about how, yeah. Grant yeah. At what point in the process were, was Grant Township, Melissa, when you had had heard about it? So at that time, I was I was a community organizer for a nonprofit that was working on fracking issues in Pennsylvania, and I had um, attended a workshop by Chad Nicholson, who's in the film, mm-hmm. and he was talking about community rights. And um, I attended actually one of his democracy schools, which uh, really like tuned me to what Seldef was doing. And so, what is Seldef? Oh, the Community Environmental Legal Defense Fund, which is in the our film Invisible Hand. And what they do is they 
they help communities write local legislation, local laws to protect themselves from things like from all kinds of industrial harm. Mm -hmm. Um, And it really, I, attending Chad's um, session really tuned me into what they were doing because it was totally different than how it was a new solution to actually protect ourselves when, you know, by then we well knew that it wasn't going to come from the powers that be. Right. Right. Um, We're on our own. Yeah. That we're on our own. We, it's up to us. And so, and Chad, the work Chad was doing in Pennsylvania was setting communities up to do just that, to protect themselves. And so uh, Grant Township was, he was working with Grant Township at the time. They're trying to keep out in a, in a, an injection well, which is where they inject toxic radioactive oil and gas waste underground. And so all the stuff that they pull up, uh, we were just putting it back underground and all didn't forgetting about it. Right. And that threatened the water supplies of the residents in Grant Township. It also threatened the ecosystem, the little Mahoning Creek watershed, which they all valued immensely, not just for their own reasons, but because it is a unique habitat that is home to aquatic life that can't live other places. Mm-hmm. So um, they decided as a community together that they didn't want the injection well there and that they were going to do whatever it took to stop it. And so that's the other reason we really hooked onto Grant as a story that needed to be told because it was, I mean, it's a community, a very rural community. There's just over 700 people in this community. Everyone's on private drinking water supplies. It's very pastoral, um, mostly Republican um, Mm -hmm. and very, a lot of conservative people, very, you know, there's plenty of uh, progressive people there too. Um, But we'd never really seen a community with such grit before, Mm -hmm. with such determination, who knew exactly what they valued and that they were not going to back down. No matter what. It's so inspiring. Yeah, they're very inspiring. Yeah. So, so they get on your radar. And so you guys are like, all right, this is the next thing. Or is it like, let's go out there and see what's going on and see if, see what's there. No, I mean, but feel like this is, this is, this is the next film. When it was clear that they were enacting rights of nature to ban fracking waste and they were going to use the personhood of their environment as a means to do that. Um, that was definitely the next film. Like there, there was no question for me that that was, that was what's going to happen. So Melissa, you too, you were like, yep, this is it. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I think, I think for me, the, the storyline ended up coming together differently. Like I, I mean, I, I knew that we needed to address the, the, the issue of capitalism, um, you know, and the pillar of private property versus common good kind of things. But for me, like, I kept, tr- I, I kept looking at it from the rights of nature thing. I, like, I think 
from the beginning, I, I really just wanted it to be just about rights of nature and like have capitalism be like a little thing that we talk about at some point. Um, you know, I had a vision for the film that it would open in nature, you know? So anyway, all that is to say that I think initially we had a little, our, I had our ideas about how, what, what the story was really going to be were different. But by the end, after, you know, like we talked about at the beginning, after all of the other interviews and pieces that you don't anticipate come together and form, end up forming an entity um, like on their own almost um, throughout that process, Andrew, Joshua, and I all, you know, started to see the same thing. Right. And then, yeah. Yeah. I think that, you know, the ideas that, you know, Melissa wanted to honor about nature being the, the person who introduces the film um, I think all of us wanted that, but the argument that, you know, I was making at the time was that, you know, rights of nature exists because of capitalism in the Western legal structure. So mm-hmm. capitalism has created its own Achilles heel. And for me, that is rights of nature. And then that's just like a theory that I, you know, I, I have, and I put out there. Mm-hmm. I believe that that's true. Um, and that, rights of nature is a defense mechanism of nature against capitalism. And you can see that with, with fracking, you know, I mean, fracking created many different rights of nature bills and opportunities because it was essentially capitalism coming in and causing so much havoc on nature and people's resources that they were using at the time um, that they had to turn to a new system. And the only new system that, kind of came into play was this rights of nature structure. Uh, But in the end, when, when, when nature, you know, still wasn't the center theme in the film that we wanted it to be, we did get the opportunity to introduce nature um, as the main subject through Degwanondas, Seneca Nation of Indians. Which is good. (laughs) Yeah. Which Melissa, you know, really helped to, to bring that narrative at the beginning, at the forefront. I, I love having him in the film. Yeah, it's it's a great aspect. That was like, you know, we wanted to interview, she was talking about interviewing him for 2018, I think, or 19, 18, about the Defend Ohio fight. And I'm like, it ain't gonna work. Nope, it ain't gonna work. <laughs> okay, and I was like, one of those. Yeah. And then in 20 or 19, I was like, oh yeah, no. I can work now. This could definitely work. To interview him about rights of nature, and you were like, "No more, yeah, no more, we no more interviews," because you were like, edit, "You had edit exhaustion." Yeah, no more interviews. But when we try to interview the indigenous communities about rights of nature, you know, you have to understand that their belief systems, their culture. Right. This is a construct of our like capitalistic. Yeah. I mean, it fits yeah. perfect in in the you know it, in the setting that white people have put on the country, right? Everything is money. Everything revolves yeah, around business. You know, we've found it, you know, and we, we come to terms with it and we relate to it um, because of our, you know, understandings of the indigenous community and, and their culture, you know, we're, we're, we're breaking the bridge between protecting nature and the way nature was protected before we were here. And um, 
that is thank you know, and thanks to them, but they don't have, you know, the idea of creating personhood as a legal structure right. for the environment in order to protect it under capitalism. Okay. That's a, that's our we, fucked up way that we yeah, have to deal with our fucking ridiculous idea of trying to make this work through capitalism, right? Which so that's corporations are people that can make contributions to politicians. And yeah, it's like, we're just playing, trying to play the game. Yeah. It didn't work. We, we tried it. We tried it with the Ho-Chunk in Wisconsin. We tried to interview them about it. And then we tried the Blackfeet in Oklahoma and some elders there. And when we had this discussion, you know, rights of nature wasn't like a, a piece of subject matter that they could speak to because we didn't understand how rights because of nature works in their language. You were- you know, so we don't know what questions to ask, you know? Yeah, there's two different things. I think, you know, for people who don't know what rights of nature is, we have to, we have to take a second to explain that what we're talking about is a legal system. It's a legal system that grants, that gives legal rights to nature, grants it. Like you can, Mm -hmm. we have, you have permission to have rights because, and that's what's coming out. That's our very Western capitalist way of trying to balance the fucked up system that we've created, right? But to the indigenous community, nature is a living thing that has just as much rights as any other, as humans do, you know? So there's like, to them, it's about, they already recognize that nature is a living thing with rights. But in our society, in the Western culture, we're like creating a legal mechanism to give those rights to nature. And so, so there was like, you know, sure. was, we were talking about different things, but we were, but Josh, the attempt was to, to, to make the connection because we wanted to honor the, the fact that this is something that has always existed and was here before us and is is the inspiration and what you know our understanding of living in harmony with nature comes from and here we are trying to create this new legal structure one of the common mistakes i want to highlight this that a western person makes with rights of nature because it is encapsulated under the idea as a legal structure is that this is just another tool in the toolbox Okay. Imagine being uh, um, indigenous and listening to that kind of reaction to rights of nature. It's, it's kind of fucking ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not another tool in the toolbox. I think that's something people really need to think about. It is a belief system mm-hmm. and it's a way of life with living in, you know, in harmony with nature. Um, we don't get to just try this tool and if it doesn't work, try another one. Like, no, this is, this is it. You know, this is this is the idea of moving forward with nature at the center of decision making in society. Um, And even though we've created this toolbox structure with it being a legal concept, um, you know, that's not true for, you know, the indigenous community and culture that we are, of course, trying to honor in the film. And, you know, Melissa is the one that um, helped to you know, open the door that we needed to open, which was bringing in the, the peacemaker prophecy into the film and having that be the foundation 
that the film stands on. Mm-hmm. And that, that made a huge difference to all of us. Yeah. Honestly, I, I love that aspect. I, you all said, I think Josh, you sent me earlier cuts of invisible hand and I felt like, um, you know, once that, do you want to talk about that? Um, the peacemaker story? Yeah. Yeah. Tell, tell us, tell our listeners, um, I guess an overview of the peacemaker. Go ahead. Peacemaker do or, or Melissa. Yeah. All right. So I am not from the Haudenosaunee Alliance, which is what a lot of people, which is the name, which is the real name of what a lot of what our history books and our school books told us was um, the Iroquois Confederacy, which was six, five, and then I think it was five and then a six na- na- in, um, nation joined or a tribe joined into the Iroquois Confederacy. And this was um, in the Northeast, uh, Pennsylvania, New York, you know, this area. We have a tornado warning, apparently. I gotta, I gotta find a way somewhere else to be. So, of course. Sorry. Thank you, Melissa, for your time. Get safe. Oh, she's gone. Shit, man. Yeah, geez. Whew. So Melissa had to take a little uh, break for a tornado, but she's back and we're back with Melissa and Josh. So uh, who was telling us about the prophecy? Let's, let's pick things back up with this prophecy. What's important to know is there was a peacemaker who came to the Haudenosaunee people um, and taught them the way to live in balance taught them that the way to live in balance with themselves and with the earth is to, is to respect and honor themselves, each other and the rest of the natural world. And it doesn't, doesn't sim- seem like a crazy idea, not a crazy idea, pretty simple. And um, one that we actually talk about that Mark and I, talk about in a, an article that's being released tomorrow in the lit in this upcoming issue of yes magazine oh cool it's a very simple yeah. way of living we, we all but need we, reminded of of this way of living right it's so simple and yet we make it so complicatedly impossible somehow but there is the threat in the prophecy which is the the white serpent you know, which is the the colonial capitalism structure um, that comes in to threaten all of that. Uh, and I guess no, the what's wrong? We can't assign what the white serpent is. Okay, but we are <laughs> suggesting. Josh, Josh interprets. <laughs> I interpret the white as serpent to be, you know, the, the living country. amongst us and maybe being us. I mean, what I'm saying is, I'm sorry, guys, but we can't just take their profit. I mean, we already, we, we used 
Dago and Nondis's telling of the prophecy in the yeah. story. But I I want to caution us from us like in doing our own interpretation of that. I don't think that's culturally okay appropriate. We can we can we'll maybe yeah. just cut this whole section. But me as a viewer, um, I I appreciated um, this aspect of your film Invisible Hand and that perspective was greatly appreciated. And I took something uh, from my interpretation of, of the story as it was conveyed and my personal understanding. And I think the viewers will as well. And I think it's a, it's a very um, useful and important uh, story and a reminder for all of us. We can leave it at that. Okay, so you late in the game of putting together this film, um, a, an aspect that maybe isn't isn't considered as important in documentaries, unfortunately, like soundtrack and music. Um, you know, a lot of times in all types of films, not just documentary, but there's like canned canned music right and the, the typical um kind of hand-holding emotional uh <laughs> generic um what what made you with invisible hand want to do something more with music how did this come about who did the music well music is essential to our filmmaking process you know it's it's what's um threading together transitions and emotions uh and difficult concepts that you can't just obtain by listening to a talking head um so with with invisible hand the soundtrack came together we had an existing um template of a soundtrack that was really good and we had people in there like colin stetson who had the original track in standing rock and it was powerful the way that, that edit worked um when we released the film before it was the premiere at the Columbus International Film Festival, friends of mine from Ohio saw it uh, from college and they run their own uh, studio in Toledo. And they reached out and said they would like to help, you know, however possible with Public Herald. I said, well, we actually don't have this Invisible Hand soundtrack done. Um, I wanted to do an original soundtrack. We haven't found somebody. I just sent an email out like yesterday to some composers I know, you know, to talk about this. And they were looking for something new to do because COVID had started and everybody was in lockdown. Uh, and they just took it on. I said, you know, we want basically <laughs> to reproduce the kind of like power and sound and structure that you hear in a series like Devs where you have these like wailing woodwinds and love devs, by the way, shout out to devs. Yeah. Alex Garland is a genius. Yep. These organic sounds. It almost sounds like whales communicating. Like we want some of that structure, you know, to this. And then we're reminding you that you're, you're creating a sound for what does capitalism sound like? But hmm. I don't mean don't demonize capitalism, like sell it for what does 80s capitalism sound like? Like go do some cocaine and create a soundtrack. Like that's what we're looking for right now, right? <laughs> that's that's what, the inspiration. Yeah. That's like- Pat, Patrick Bateman. Yeah. I mean, like capitalism is just like this like never ending 
structure of you can have everything you want, anything you want. And we want to know what that sounds like. Mm -hmm. So that's in there. And then what does rights of nature sound like, you know, to you that's in there. Um, And they came up with this like elemental structure of like earth, wind, fire, and land. And by they, I mean, heavy color. This was made by heavy color, which is Sam Waldenberg and Ben Cohen. And they are distributing their soundtrack through curious music, uh, which is Russell Curie out of Iowa. It's a really cool independent label. Um, so that process was a lot of back and forth, you know, our team listening to cuts that they made and then, you know, sending back like really, uh, you know, critical statements about like, well, we think this is just too, this is too clean. Like we don't want an NPR track, Mm -hmm. you know, like we want something more garage and beat up and raw, you know, to fit into these sections. So there's a lot of back and forth on that. Um, and they had to work with composers who were also in isolation, hmm. who had to create strings and other percussions. So this was all own. during COVID that this yeah. was created. Uh-huh. Yeah, which is crazy. So they never produced the film soundtrack before. And then all of a sudden, you know, through COVID and um, this, what should be a difficult process, came out with an, what I think is just a masterpiece. It's great. Yeah, the soundtrack is great. Yeah, I'm just really grateful that they came to us. And when Josh is right, it's beautiful. They really very masterfully, you know, kind of mimicked nature, but also, anyway, they did a great job. Yeah, it's, it's right. impressive. No, no. After a tornado. Yeah, I mean, like originally, <laughs> oh, you know, that opening scene in Invisible Hand, like the undercut sound that was running through there was a piece from Philip Glass. And I think you remember hearing that, John. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, so we were, you know, looking into licensing mm-hmm. that unreleased Philip Glass piece, which was similar to what you hear in Thin Blue Line. What you know? what is what does it take to license? Uh what what did you find? How far did you get through that process? Well, you know, it's the cost and it, essentially there's a, just a really ridiculous structure that they have not, you can't generally buy this universal license. Like I want a universal license to distribute this in perpetuity um, through any platform in the future. It's like, well, you have a theatrical release license or you have your streaming license or you have this or that. And it's like, no, I mean, that's not how we can work. You know, we can't just come up with an extra $5,000 for you when we decide to stream it online. Um, you know, and I, with, I don't want to say what the pricing is with Colin Stetson, but you know, that the, the, the cost for that one song in the film was essentially as much as it would take to produce a whole soundtrack by an original artist Mm -hmm. for the film. Um, so yeah, that's the situation you're running into as an independent filmmaker is that if you want to use a more established label based track, you could likely be paying a license cost that an artist, an independent artist could produce on their own through their studio for that, for the whole film, for that amount of money, mm-hmm. um, if they believe in the project. So, and independent filmmakers, I mean, we should be partnering up with other independent artists anyhow, right? I mean, it kind of, it does, you know, you've made, you've put all this time making an original film. I mean, I don't know. When I hear like the same, 
you know, chords and a number of movies during like emotional beats and stuff like that. It sometimes it is a little distracting because it's like, oh yeah, that that song by Clint Mansell or whatever. I've I've heard that in three movies now. You know, it's like get a get an original idea. I don't know. I appreciate. Um, yeah, it takes it maybe takes more work than just looking through a library of existing material and picking and choosing if you have, you know, unlimited funds or something like that. But um, I, I appreciate the extra effort that you all put into uh, getting some original music and giving giving a, a musician or musicians a, a chance to spread their wings and, and do film is great. It's a win win. Let's jump to what you're all doing now as far as releasing the film. So now we've both got, we're both in this position of we've had films that we've been working on for years. They're done. And then the pandemic of 2020, ongoing pandemic uh, hits. And our model uh, revolved around seeing seeing people people seeing the film in person for a large amount of time normally like a year a year plus um before getting into the whole you know rental and um physical media and and stuff like that so how did you pivot and how's it going so far <laughs> well yeah like Melissa said you know we have to do um a lot of this independently and that means that we had to restructure our distribution model from community screenings to online streaming um so luckily we were we had to do this right away um we had a screening scheduled right when covid started um for triple divide redacted and we had to then create a new page on the website for triple divide redacted and figure out how to do a Q&A, how to show the film, how to get people to interact, how to moderate it. So right away, we were like learning so much about this process and what this, what's capable of during this process. Um, where we're at now is, I think, leagues beyond where we started. Um, we're definitely in a more streamlined process. We have better software to work with. And I think that what we're using is the most successful option for independent filmmakers because you're not losing all of your money to Eventive or mm-hmm. whoever that might be that's hosting your film and charging you a ridiculous rate um, to, to show your film through a platform online. Uh, so we're using Vimeo, you know, Vimeo's password option, embedding that video there and using ticket distribution through Ticket Spice. Um, so you can set up your own tickets online that way. Um, there's no subscription based thing. They take their cut out of the sales itself and it's not tremendous. And then for doing the Q and a, we have our team engineer, um, more a different style of a Q and a. So it's not webinar. It's not zoom. You're basically running, you know, people's feeds through zoom or Skype mm-hmm. to Vimeo live. Uh, and then you're creating a broadcast of that Q&A through that with a, with an engineer in the back end. We uh, should say that Vimeo Live is pricey for, Vimeo for Live filmmakers is, listening to this. So what is, you do is to get around Vimeo Live is instead you do it for free through OBS 
or if it's a smaller group of people, you can use obs.ninja. Um, and that gets us around the cost for Vimeo and switches it, switches you into using something like YouTube as, as a way to distribute it. Mm-hmm. The reason we're using Vimeo now is because of the live chat option, which is able to be embedded on that screening page where people can interact. But we just tested it and it didn't work on Vimeo. Um, so Vimeo, you know, pay more attention to the bugs out there because they're everywhere. And that it's needs- a challenge. I mean, I, I have to say, so I participated in your official world premiere, which when was that? Was that November of 2020? When, when was it? September 20. Okay. Wow. Yeah. The months just yeah. blurring together. <laughs> so, so yeah. September and I felt like the experience was good. You had a landing page um, and you know, you kind of explained everything like as you're scrolling down through the page, like, okay, this is the first step and then you're going to go here and then, you know, the Q and A is going to be here. I mean, how did, um, and I thought the Q and A was excellent. And I know Melissa, when you were, uh, taking shelter, uh, and Josh and I were chatting offline, um, we talked about how it's so important for films like yours to have that interaction, right? It's not just about showing the film and you're done or having like, I told Josh, I, I just participated in um, A24's doing their self-hosting screenings of their new film, which is called Minari. And they did a pre-recorded intro and a pre-recorded Q and A. And it's just not the same experience. Um, and I was saying to Josh, like if you're there just to see like the stars faces and kind of, you know, have them answer the same questions of why did you choose this project and why is this film important? Like that's one thing, but something like Triple Divide and Redacted and Invisible Hand, you need that interaction. Like when people watch these films, they're going to have a lot of questions. They're going to want to ask like, what can I do in my community? You know, they're going to be inspired and just a one and done film. It just doesn't work. So I appreciate you all taking the time to tough it out with the technology to do an actual live Q and a it's a, it's a challenge. That's what it's all about is, you know, having that interaction and the outreach that exists and the relationship that exists with, with viewers um, after these shows. And, you know, Melissa and I would normally do this um, in a theater or a library or whatever. And we would be able to talk with the audiences afterwards um, and meet them and collaborate with them. And that's, that's something that, you know, we're, we're all struggling to not have right now is those kinds of relationships face to face with people. Um, so we're doing what we can with the, with the Q and A's online Um we've started to make a frequently asked questions document so we can start to, you know, get all of these questions answered, even if we run out of time um, and to kind of like streamline how we answer this stuff too. So I know Melissa has been working on that. And that's a lot of work and not every filmmaker is going to want to do that. Um, But if you want (laughs) to, If you want to build audience, if you want to get your message out there, if you want people to see your film, um, it may be the only option. Yeah. And if you want your film to have impact, I mean, 
I'm not a filmmaker because I want to make films. I'm a filmmaker because I want to change the world. And if you're not going to take, I mean, so, so, you know, it depends on what you're about. And, you know, if you're passionate about becoming part of like a movement and nurturing that, then it's just a no brainer. You know, you just have to do it. You do it. You just do it. You have to do it. So you introduce rights of nature in this documentary. Um, there's also, there was an attempt with the Lake Erie Bill of Rights. I know we've also talked in the past about home charter rule. How do you see, I, I imagine at the end of your screenings for Invisible Hand, you get a lot of people saying, what, what can I do in my town, in my city, in my backyard? Um, how do you, how have you seen these conversations evolving since you first started working on Invisible Hand to now? What makes you like most helpful or most hopeful? What do you feel is the way to win, the way to win, the way to move forward? Um, you know, what's kind of your temperature of, of the situation these days now that more people are learning about these concepts? When we started covering this, um, there were very, very few, maybe like half a dozen of these rights of nature actions across the world. Um, and so that was around like 2013, 2014. And we wanted to release the film in 2018. And even then in 2018, it had started to spread, but there was still, um, it was still very intermittent and the, nobody had heard of rights of nature in 2018 except the people who were doing it. I sure and, did not. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's still true today, but it's, you know, but just last night I was walking around um, in downtown St. Augustine, Florida, and I ended up getting caught by uh, some, some folks who were pushing their uh, animal rights agenda. And I mentioned rights of nature and they knew what it was. That never would have happened a couple of years ago, never. Um, and so even with, even within, you know, even with activists who are in justice work, doing justice work. And so for a couple reasons, the film was delayed. We chose to delay it. And it released in 2020, which was the year within, and really Rights of Nature took off in 2019 and 2020. So if you look at the timeline of Rights of Nature work, it's like one thing in 2006, one. And it was in Pennsylvania, that's where it started. In 2008, it's two things. In 2010, it's a couple more. 2014, a few more. But in 2019 and 2020, the list of actions um, being taken in countries across the world just goes, it just like spikes, right? So we're, we're at the moment when rights of nature is, is finally like having its moment. It's like in the process of becoming part of the greater consciousness, right? So to speak. Yeah. And, um, and so and that's only going to keep going. I think it's only going to become more and more necessary and relevant. And I mean, like Josh was saying earlier, this is, you know, 
this is not a movement that we have the luxury of accepting or, or to just ignore. This is what has to happen. We mm-hmm. have to put nature and the laws of nature and, and the rights of the living planet to exist. Um, we have to put that at the decision at the center of our decision-making processes or we fail. We continue to fail because we've been doing, we've been failing for a long time and it's really catching up to us. And so the climate crisis is a symptom of the fundamental failure that we've been manifesting for hundreds of years now. And so um, it's only going to get more and more pronounced and there's only going to be more and more opportunities for people to engage. And um, if folks want to get started, um, the you know, a good quick and dirty way to do that is to watch the film. And then we have um, at on our website at invisiblehandfilm.com slash action, we have a list of organizations who do this work. And I encourage folks to go there, click through to those organizations and follow them, see what they're up to, reach out to them. The, the film is always coming up. Like when someone mentions rights of nature or Lake Erie bill of rights or something, um, that I think the timing it's interesting. Yeah. You all wanted it to come out uh, a couple years earlier, but it, that's the timing I think worked out all, all things considered because now you're right. This is becoming more of the, um, more central to the conversation of, of a number of these issues. Um, so thank you for, for listing that website because I'll be checking it out myself as well. Well, I thank you both for telling your stories and, um, you know, without triple divide and invisible hands, I mean, I wouldn't have made on earth. I wouldn't have been inspired to like, really it started a lot of things for me personally. Now I'm involved in grassroots environmental organizations. I mean, it's really like opened my eyes. Like I was living under this veil of, you know, this capitalistic corporate utopia, right, of America. And um, I just want to thank you both for your time because I know obviously, uh, as everyone heard through this interview, you're two busy, important individuals fighting fighting to change the world, like you said, Melissa. And um, thanks for telling your stories. And please don't stop educating people like me. (laughs) Thanks. um, That's really nice to hear. Thank you for sharing that. I didn't know all that. And you, um, thank you for, um, you know, that's the thing. Like, it is a ton (laughs) We're, we're just insane the amount of stuff you are that we try to, um let alone or somehow able to pull off but um it's the only way that's possible is with support i mean we have a support network which you've been a part of for a long time so well we you. need to support those who are who are doing right so yeah i echo that so uh, thanks john thanks for having us on Cinema Activist is produced by Lion's Den Productions. 
Hosted by John C. Lyons. Music by Tony Gray. Support the efforts of Lions Den Productions by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash Lions Den Productions. Thank you for listening. We'll be back soon. Thank you.